Welcome to Well Wisdom, where we visit with guests and explore topics that help you overcome life's inevitable adversities, both big and small, to find meaning, purpose, joy, happiness, connection, confidence, and strength. This is the essence of resiliency, the ordinary magic that we are all capable of. Welcome to Well Wisdom. Today we'll explore how mindfulness enhances our engagement at work and what this means for each of us as employees as well as for our employers. And we're so fortunate to have Dr. Bradley Brummel with us. He's a psychology professor from the University of Tulsa in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He holds a doctorate or a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and he teaches and researches a variety of topics related to employee well-being and development in the workplace. He also is a narrative coach and does consulting through his company, Convala. Am I saying that correctly, Dr. Brummel? Well, it's Convalo, which is sort of a, a Latin uh, word, means, which means to grow stronger. So I took Latin in high school and a little bit in college. So then I thought it was a useful use of it, I guess. <laughs> I love it. Convalo. Okay, very awesome. Well, um, today we're going to talk about mindfulness and engagement and how that can really enhance our work experience. But before we do that, I thought it might be nice just to let our listeners know what is industrial and organizational psychology? Yeah, it's a good question. We get it a lot. Um, we even had a big debate as a field on whether we should make it simple, like workplace psychology, but uh, people couldn't agree to do that. So it comes from the industrial tradition of scientific management and trying to make factories and production more effective. And then also the organizational side, we tried to or, uh, understand organizational structures and people's experience within organizations. And so people pretty strongly like both of those camps. And as a field, we really study the aspects of human psychology in the workplace, both the people and the situations that lead to both well-being in the workplace and performance. And so it's an interesting mix of trying to get the most out of workers, but also trying to have workers be as healthy as possible. And so sometimes you get some of those tensions in the field. Um, and then like my lab actually a few years ago tried to explain what it was and my conclusion was, you know, what organizational psychologists do best is measure people. And if you want to have a customized solution to any of your human problems as an organization, you actually have to measure them accurately. So we measure people's um, knowledge and skills and attitudes and preferences and well-being and stressors so that we can hopefully tweak things in the situation um, to help them, you know, thrive and then help the organization succeed as well. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Thank you so much for that. And so my next big question is from an IO psychologist perspective, what is engagement at work? Yeah, so people use it a lot of different ways. And so one version of it, um, I think the cynical version of it, it was just a new name that we put on satisfaction surveys in order to sell them again after be people became less motivated by, you know, buying and, and selling them because they thought that uh, you could be satisfied at work and do nothing. And the idea was you couldn't be engaged in your workplace and actually not be productive as well because engagement had more of this active piece to it. Uh, but the engagement measure that um, I like to use 
actually tries to capture the degree of dedication, vigor, and absorption you're experiencing while working. So it, the idea is really about sort of a state of being, as a state of being engaged while you're working. Uh, and then as we measure it, it the, the basic idea is kind of what percentage of the time while you're at work, or if you evaluate your work overall, does it feel more or less engaging to you? Yeah, and so if we're engaged at work, then we're experiencing work, it sounds like, in a much more positive way because we feel energized by it. Would that be an accurate thing to say? Yeah, energized by it. And then the absorption piece is sort of like close to these ideas of flow state. So, you know, when we're at work, we're actually like in it sometimes to the point where we get absorbed and, and into the work. You know, we feel this strong dedication to it. And then the bigger aspect, is actually this, you know, I am feeling good while working, like it actually is energizing to me. So it has these sort of different aspects, but overall, they tend to come together uh, when people are, you know, kind of, you know, I guess engaged <laughs> as they describe it in the work that they have. Yeah, that's great. And so then let's talk a little bit about mindfulness and how mind, well, I guess we can start by just defining mindfulness. Yeah, so there's a, a variety of different sort of schools uh, of thought in terms of how we think about what is and isn't mindfulness. Part of it's because of the um, tradition pulling from sort of some Eastern traditions and the practice of mindfulness around sort of healthcare and in those spaces. And so, you know, the way I really think about it uh, is that when you are being mindful, you're engaged in non judgmental, like present attention. And so one of the ideas is, so that's like you're currently being mindful is that state. And then when we talk about mindfulness more broadly, again, we talk about the same idea of people who are more often in that state of mind uh, as being more mindful or people who have a, an ability to enter that state and sort of stay in that state um, are also would be considered uh, more mindful in that way. So there's ways of thinking about it as an ability and as like a trait, if you think about how often you're in it. And then in general, it's based upon being uh, intentionally in the present um, in this sort of non-judgmental way, paying attention to both internal and external um, stimuli. Yeah, and so that's interesting to think about it as just a state of being, but then also a trait. And so I think both of those probably can translate into the workplace. Like, you know, if we, if the work we're doing, the thing, the task we're engaged in allows us, or we choose to be mindful in it, what might be one thing? And then are we just more of a mindful person and we approach work more mindfully? Um, yeah. And there's, there, it's, it's not the cleanest sort of set of, you know, constructs that we call them in the field, because what happens is we have an idea that we start with in like sort of this idea of being in a mindful state and the advantages that might come from it. And then we, we try to use it in research and we have to, um, where we typically want to study longer periods of time. And so when we say, okay, well, it's, it, there's pros and cons to being in a mindful state. How do we look at whether people who are more mindful, like more of the time, you know, does that actually turn into larger things like your overall work performance or ratings of how you do? And so I don't do much of the moment to moment research um, saying that when, a, when I am in this 
state I do this better or worse. I do more of the between subjects research, which kind of says like people who are more often more like this, more mindful, are more likely to experience these other states. And so there's a slight difference in the research there, um, but you know it, it does wrap around the same ideas. Yeah, and so people who are more mindful, how does that impact their engagement at work? Um, so one of my, I guess my most cited paper, a paper that I did with uh, a professor named Eric Dane, who's at uh, Washington University in St. Louis um, now, uh, we actually tried to ask this question and to our knowledge, we were kind of one of the first groups of people to connect mindfulness to engagement and performance. And we, we actually found a sample of restaurant workers where we thought it might be uniquely helpful to be in this state of just experiencing what's happening. So both the internal emotions of the stress of being in the weeds, of not getting a tip from someone, of being treated rudely, of being treated kindly with everything happening around you. Does this table, table need water? Does this table need um, silverware? Am I, am I behind? You know, all of these things. Does this coffee cup need to be filled? And so we really thought that that kind of a dynamic environment, people would be able to you know, both be more engaged with the work if they could recognize everything that was happening, and then also sort of get this reputation potentially for being more effective and performing well. Uh, and so in our study, we did show uh, a reasonable size relationship between, you know, both the uh, mindfulness and the engagement. And then interestingly, sort of the big piece was this subsequent rating of performance by people's supervisors. And so we expect to see the engagement um, to performance link um, and then having that mindfulness predictor in there, um, we thought was exciting because there's clearer paths in some ways to saying you can practice being more mindful. Um, it's a little bit less clear to just say be more engaged. <laughs> so, yeah, so it offers like a path or an avenue um, to enhancing engagement and you know, what supervisors see is better performance at work. So it sounds like it creates that win for the employee as well as a win for the employer. Would you describe it that way? I think, you know, if it, at its core, mindfulness should allow you to see both yourself and the situation more clearly. And so one of the things we didn't see um, was sort of these decreases in like intentions to leave the organization. And so one of the things you might say is that if someone is able to, um, you know, really be present in this non-judgmental way, they might see the organization for what it truly is. And in that environment, then you can actively shape it potentially to, to make the, your experience there more engaging and to perform well. But the flip side of it is I think it also might make you choose to leave an organization. And you know, I think part of this great resignation thing that people are talking about now actually is partly driven by the fact that the pandemic gave people enough distance from their workplaces to see them more clearly. So when you're just purely in the emotional roller coaster of a job, you might be missing some of that mindfulness and not sort of seeing, you know, there's other things out there, or maybe this doesn't give me um, the space I need. So it's not a panacea uh, for you know all all things, uh, but I do think it gives you an opportunity to um, create um, situations and rules and bear and boundaries uh, 
um, to be as effective as you can be. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, um, you know, people want to be in jobs that align with who they believe they are, and it's a good fit, you know, it, the work, of course, the challenge, but just the values of the organization. And as you say, seeing the organization as it truly is and realizing, hey, this is the place for me, or this is not the place for me. And I would also think that employers want the employees that fit in their organization to, to be there. So even though there might be some musical chairs, if you will, and people have you know more of a realization and they may wanna step away, in the end, maybe it gets people to the right place um, and, and where they really need to be, which I think would be a plus for everybody. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, some of the coaching work I do ends up really being on, you know, the supervision side. And one of the most stressful things is when someone who works for you leaves and you might be happy for them, you know, personally, but you're still struggling in the workplace and to really say, okay, like, how do you make sure that the work, you know, fits the people you want to have? So how do you design it from the supervision side or the management side is another piece where I think this, this shows up. Um, and of course, when you're, you know, having the weight of that supervision, how do you remain mindful, you know, in these, especially in these like emotional and or distracting, you know, contexts? Yeah, no, those are some great points. And, you know, something that fascinates me in some of the things that I've read is like individual mindfulness. If you have a team of people say, and they're all um, individually mindful, that doesn't necessarily translate into team mindfulness or workplace mindfulness. And I would just love to get your thoughts on that. And especially if you think there are things that maybe organizations can do to promote individual and team mindfulness. Yeah, I mean, we'd love to do that in psychology, like make things at the team and the organizational level. Like, I don't, I wonder about that. Like, you know, that kind of anthropomorphizing of an organization or a team to be mindful. Because what we do is we bump into the idea of just being successful. Right. And so for a team to be successful, it has to stay, you know, in the moment sometimes and sort of not be judgmental in these in these spaces. It reminds me of like the fluency, you know, uh, part of a creative process. Right. We're not going to judge ideas. We're all going to be here. We're going to put them on the board before we move forward. And so I, I can I think that. If you have a set of mindful employees. They should be, if it's working correctly, more receptive to different roles and different approaches to team processes, which then you might add up to those things. But unless you actively create those structures, yeah, you might not just see, you know, six mindful people, you know, really performing well as a team just because they have that, that trait themselves or that tendency. Yeah, that makes sense because there could actually be you know, different structures or culture or things within the organization that make it difficult for them to be at that set point of more mindfulness. Um, it might actually undermine it. So that makes, that makes good sense. And I, when you were talking, it also made me think of psychological safety. And many people are familiar with you know, Google's research and data around like high performing teams being um, more psychologically safe. And I would think that with mindfulness that would drive that type of trust and, um, and, you know, just interacting in a way where you're not just safeguarding and you're not playing it so, so safe, but you're willing to create a dynamic where you take some interpersonal risk and actually share more ideas and, and ways of doing things. I'm, yeah, I, I think the big, the big crux there has to be sort of in this non-judgmental non piece where, you know, when somebody says 
criticizes an idea you have, you're not going to hold that so tightly that it's you. And so sort of the practice of mindfulness should give people the distance between sort of ideas and self and the idea that you can put out an idea that might be bad. And even if the idea doesn't go anywhere, you know, you can still be a valued member of the group. And so this disconnection between contribution and maybe even response to something you do one time in a moment and who you are as a person, you know, allows you to participate in this safe way. And so that is really the, you know, a benefit of mindfulness that I think would lead to experiencing safety across more frequently than, than other people across a variety of contexts. So. Yeah, that's a great explanation. I think you're right. When we can be more objective and kind of separate ourselves from even our work or our successes or our failures and not be identified by what others think of us or the fact that they shot down an idea or not makes so much sense. Um, and I guess if you go way down the rabbit hole, you know, of this sort of uh, meditative, mindful practice, you know, if you realize you just don't have a self, then there's nothing to defend, right? So, <laughs> but that that might be that, that. I don't know that that's necessary to sort of gain some of the benefits of of really this ability to be in the moment without constantly thinking about the past or the future or just being critical of, you know, either the situation around you or yourself in such a way that it pulls that much attention in. You know, and it's interesting as we're talking about this, it's making me think of the opposite end of the spectrum because there's some people that think being highly competitive and, you know, almost like this cutthroat achievement oriented type of atmosphere would produce better results and more results. And, you know, we've talked about things that mindfulness can, can help people, you know, to almost create an edge and to perform better, but there might be some people who think it's going to soften individuals and make them less competitive and less achievement oriented. What would you say to that? So I think the, we mistake working really hard and sort of this competitive piece um, from a value of achievement and then how you would go about doing that. And then also the experience of feeling that you have achieved something of value. And I think a lot of the people who we look at and say that person is really competitive and striving is actually doing some version of just pure autopilot, right? So you're essentially seeing everything as a situation to win. And a lot of times those end up being sort of these Pyrrhic victories. You win, but no one on your team will ever work for you again or work with you again. Well, then what have you really won, right? Or, you know, you've, you know, sold more than anyone else, but you didn't, you know, you let the stuff in the fridge, you know, rot because, you know, that's not your job. That wasn't just turned into the thing you could win on or the the performance outcome. And so I do think that, you know, you can, there's certain areas where performance is much more about flow or much more about just mindlessly, like, you know, putting in the hours and churning the head. But a lot of our office jobs, a lot of our knowledge work, uh, there's only so much we can accomplish and we can work really hard in the wrong direction. And then it doesn't matter what we did for months too. So it's, there, there's a lot of pieces there. So I don't think being mindful in a mindful state all the time is going to lead to say the most achievement or the most work, Um, but it does prevent us from going really hard and fast down a wrong path, I think. Yeah. And missing things that might really be important and then being like, whoops, wait, I didn't take care of 
um, maybe my most important relationship at, you know, at the expense of like being super successful at work and not having, you know, that balance or whatnot. And, and in most, I was going to say most of the people that, that, you know, I talk with, if they really think about what they want to accomplish, you know, if they step back and can put it down from a value perspective, it really does include the way in which they work and how they're seen. So there's, there's a few people who are just, you know, in this purely self-interested, I want to achieve, I don't care what wreckage I leave behind, but that's pretty rare, um, especially as people mature. And so, you know, I think one of the things mindfulness helps us do is step back and say, which of the things we can achieve, which of the prizes we can win are really worth it. And also which trade-offs are actually happening when we make that choice. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and I was also thinking when you were talking about just having like a sense of meaning and purpose in, in work. And I know, um, you know, that is something that can help us, you know, just kind of mitigate burnout. It's one, one little piece of it. But um, I would think that with mindfulness, there would be that ability to be clear on what is meaningful and purposeful, and then being able to figure out ways to connect with it a little better at work. I'm curious your thought, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, connect with the things that really do sort of draw you in, you know, the things that do engage you. But also, I think more, the more and more that I see now is to actually disconnect with the things that pull us away. And so political environments, um, distractions of things that, you know, can come in. There's a lot of these things which keep us from enjoying the core part of the work, which is why we got into it in the first place. And so, you know, I'm uh, like... And in, at, at the age that we typically describe as like the lowest point in job satisfaction or engagement, because you kind of achieve a certain amount and then you're like, well, what now? What's left? And when people are successful, they sort of rediscover the joy of the work that, you know, pulled, pulled people into it in the first place. So to actually, you know, work through something to help a student understand it or to create a paper or a model or an idea that's useful for someone. And so that requires this sustained attention directed towards the work and not the politics of the organization or the country or the drama, you know, that is going on. And so I think that's a piece too, where we can find the space um, to rediscover sometimes each day, the engaging parts of our work. Yeah, and I like how you say that because it's not just about connecting with the right stuff, but it's about disconnecting with the wrong stuff and and being, um, you know, to have that discernment to know this is draining me, this is distracting me, and I'm going to move away from it. And I do think mindfulness helps us to see more and to have that kind of mental control to, to put our energy in the right spot. Yeah, you know, and, and the mental control is a big piece of it. And then the other piece, you know, one of uh, actually thinking back to when we were, you know, working on um, some of the narrative coaching stuff with Dr. Drake, you know, he always said that self-control starts at the store and not at the fridge, you know, yeah. with this love of ice cream. Uh, and I think this is really true when we think about our workplaces. So when we think about how can I create the space for certain types of attentional practice, uh, there's really important pieces like my one of the biggest ones is I can't stand any uh, auditory alerts on anything that I have. You know, I, I decide when email when I look at email, it doesn't come at me. 
And so trying to find the spaces that can be uninterrupted or the times that allow you to do that in the workplace are some of the like situations you can build such that additional mindfulness and engagement is possible. So it's not just a battle of wills, it's sort of the insight to create the structures. Yeah, and just building on that, that's kind of interesting because I'm actually doing, trying out this other program right now called Positive Intelligence, and it has little bits of mindfulness, you know, through an app, but it's, um, it, one of the big advantages, you know, they claim is that a lot of people who do have maybe a meditative practice or something, they're doing it as a segmented block of time, maybe before their workday, maybe during their lunchtime, or maybe, at, you know, at the end of the day. But the challenge is to bring it in to the workday. And I love, you know, just like sensory awareness. I think of Ellen Langer kind of bringing that piece of mindfulness in where we could take any task, you know, maybe it's when we get to work and we park our car and then we walk into the building, but, but how can we bring it into our day so it's not like a disconnected separate thing that we're doing? And I just wonder if you have any ideas around that. I mean, one of the things that I, uh, I, I'll say I haven't done it as often as I should because it appeals to me, but like if you have control of the work setting and it's sort of culturally acceptable, like doing things that are even grounding and, and intentional for a specific meeting or for a class. Like I started a class and sort of invited people to leave the rest of their lives behind, you know, close their eyes, take a couple minutes and sort of bring whichever sort of part of them has themselves, like enjoyed being curious and learning these things. You know, because people are coming, they're running from every direction, they're doing this, they're thinking of all kinds of things. And they're like, if we're gonna be in this room for however long and trying to do a specific thing, there are a number of mindfulness adjacent grounding exercises that, you know, one option is to do it in your office before you hit the meeting. A next option is to actually do it with the group of people as you about as you're about to attempt to do a certain type of performance. And so again, I I like these things. I don't enact them as often as I kind of want to, partly because it still feels a little weird, you know, in some situations. But I do think um, I believe that my mindfulness practice that I've done. Uh, does make me more aware of when sort of the energy or the attempts of performance in a room just aren't happening the way they're supposed to. And when I'm at my best, you know, I can actually say like, we need to like take a break and come back to like what we're actually doing here, which is, you know, a call and a technique towards um, the right kind of attention. Yeah, I like, I really like that. And I, um, and I, I work with individuals and teams too and do coaching. And sometimes I have actually led little meditations prior to team meetings. Um, and, and I think you're right. You kind of need to gauge the energy in the room. Is this something that's going to be received well and accepted? And can, and can we start to integrate that and bring that into the way that you know we're interacting, at least when I'm there, maybe working with them. And so, my, um, uh, yeah. My, uh, I don't know, most... I don't want to say work-friendly uh, approach to that, I guess, has really been around the roles that each person needs to play in that room. And so for working professionals, nowadays, we often play so many different roles. And so if we come into a situation with, say, a competitive role or a parent mindset or, 
you know, whatever it is, it might not be what we need in that room. And so if you're in a room where the role is, you know, a member of a nonprofit board, you have to leave behind, say, political feelings you have in order to be effective in what the task at hand is. And so uh, I like these various ways of just reminding each person who they've agreed to be and who they're supposed to be in this room mm -hmm. and sort of taking some time to be there and call up all of the sort of aspects of attention and responses that come with that. Because we, when we bring the wrong role or self into a room, we're absolutely sort of not starting from a mindful place. Yeah, and I've done, you know, like a simple thing, like just a very quick body scan and, you know, just all the things I've read is like when we connect with our, our body and, our, you know, how we're feeling in a space, then that helps to build like the empathy and the compassion muscle. So helping people to be a little more sensitive, hopefully, to what everyone's needs are. And another thing I've done, which I've found to be really good, is just to go around like the, ta the meeting table and have everyone say, like, if we go to the right, for example, what's one thing you're grateful for, you know, about the person to your right. And just to kind of set things off in a way that's positive and appreciating what everyone's bringing to the table versus maybe competitive and, and, and critical, so. You're definitely bringing people into the present then, you know? And so I think those are the two core pieces kind of from the definition that I had, like you're bringing people into the present and you're bringing them away from judgment. Yeah. You know, and so if you can get someone in the present and in this non-judgmental space, then you'll be in the, you'll in the best situation to have what would be a mindful interaction if that's what's called for in that moment. So I think that's a, those in any method for pulling towards those two ideas can be useful. And when we see people being either definitely not in the present or definitely in this sort of judgmental space, you know, one of the things that I hope we could be able to do my dreams for people I coach is to actually be able to say like, I'm not in the right mindset or we're not in the right mindset. Like let's, let's do this later to actually just stop something when, you know, we know it's off the rails and say, we'll return to this when we can both actually be here in the right head space. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And that we would all be so much better off if we just kind of could put the brakes on when we weren't in the right mindset to do the particular thing. And then as you were talking, I thought of something else too. And that is just like the prevalence of us all having our electronic equipment with us um, because that can be so distracting. And, and I think that the key takeaways that you just summarized is like, it's all about being in the present moment and, and being non-judgmental. And so that the, the, electronics, phone, computers, tablets, those are really gonna distract us from the, the exchange or the interaction at hand if we're meeting with someone. So that's like a concrete takeaway too. If people wanna be more mindful, they can just put their electronics to the side. A few, there's a Jack White had a concert in Tulsa at least. A few people have done that where they actually make people lock up their phones and don't let them in for the idea that they could, I mean, in this case, it's said so that they enjoy the concert more, not so they don't pirate it. But there is this question of, you know, when is it, you know, useful to make sure that we, you know, we, whatever the we is, don't, don't have that uh, distraction available. And I am uh, no type of a prototype or model of that. So I have, I struggle with those distractions for sure. Yeah, well, I'm just trying to think of little tips that we could give people who want to try to be, you know, more mindful. And maybe, maybe even if they can just decide, I'm going to take a 10 minute break from my phone or whatever's feasible for them, you know, to move it in that direction would be great. I, 
I coached somebody whose uh, goal for a week was to keep his phone locked uh, in his bedroom for the entire Game of Thrones finale so he could enjoy it and not be distracted. But, you know, I think when, sometimes we get a little too serious about some of these ideas when they're research things. And there's ways to, you know, explore and have them be, you know, fun or small little trials. And then there's some things that are like a lot of, you know, small things you can do. And so one thing I really like, again, is to make sure your meetings all actually end with 10 minutes between, because, you know, that extra 10 minutes you spent with someone that ran into your next meeting means you showed up in the wrong mindset. There's going to be so much bleed over plus some anxiety for running late for the next one. And if what you're doing is constantly having the, your different meetings run into each other, there's no way you're hitting them in mindful head spaces. And so that's, you know, actually the discipline to not have that kind of a schedule is one of the first things I encourage people to think about doing. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you so much for that. And so I'm, um, I'm looking at our time. We probably should start to wrap it up. I always enjoy talking with you though. It's always, you always have so much great insight and ideas. I'm just wondering if there are any good resources around mindfulness that you might direct our listeners to. I mean, there's, there's so much available just if you Google mindfulness in this space. You know, personally, of the things I've played around with a little bit, I, I do use a Headspace app because uh, I think those are pretty simple um, visualizations and work. So that's sort of the thing I use occasionally for the, the habit side. Um, and then I, I do a little bit of, of things with uh, something called Waking Up, which is uh, Sam Harris's his podcast. Uh, so those are kind of the two resources I use myself um, in this way. And, and, you know, I'm pretty, I call it like agnostic in this space in terms of how you get there. So, you know, I have a friend who, you know, when he runs, he's like, you know, meditating and engaging sort of in this mindful space. Like I am not at all. I'm like dreading every minute and wanting it to end. And I, I'm jealous of him because he's just like, how far have we gone? <laughs> you know, and I know exactly. And so I think one of the things I would just say is, you know, if, if you get a sense of what the feeling is, is to, is to do a lot of, you know, exploration yourself about which things help you into those headspaces. So for some people, it's music. For some people, it is the breathing. For other people, um, you know, it's one of these sort of apps or practices. So. Yeah, and I think you're right. There's so much out there and there's so many avenues for us to access this. So to explore is the ticket, right? So everyone can find exactly what's right uh, for them. And there's there really are infinite possibilities, it seems like. So I appreciate that too. So I'm wondering if people want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have tons of things floating around on the sort of generally accessible internet. So because I do mostly academic research at this point in time, um, we did do a, a few episodes of a podcast we called Above the Mop, which is this idea that um, we want to perform better than if we were replaced by a floor mop in the workplace. So everyone's had a manager who you just wish was a mop, you know, an inanimate object in the corner. Um, but otherwise, um, I think normally if you Google uh, my name, uh, Bradley Brummel, uh, you can find, you know, some of the media interviews I've done. And, you know, if you look it up on Google Scholar, you can see the empirical articles um, at this point. So, 
Yeah, and I think you are on LinkedIn too. If yes, um, yeah. if people want to connect with you there, I don't know how actively you're posting or whatnot, but it's still a good way to kind of connect with you and see what's going on. Yep, absolutely. So anyway, thank you so much. This has been great. And I always like to leave our listeners with a little wish as we close. So if you'll indulge me in doing that, I just want to share with all of our uh, well, well listeners, I, I hope that as we leave, you'll be happy, you'll be healthy, and you, you'll find yourself in work that is incredibly fun, interesting, and energizing. Thank you so much, Dr. Brummel. Oh, thank you, Beth. It's been great. Thanks for joining me. I hope you found today's well wisdom inspirational and empowering. Is there a golden nugget you can bring forward into your life and perhaps even share with a loved one, friend, or colleague? Here's to you and your amazing ability to be resilient, to create your very own ordinary magic. Until next time, well listeners, 